people pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. Hey folks, welcome to a special episode of The Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. On this episode, I am talking with Rachel Stolci and Laura Rooney, all about AMIA, AMIA, also known as the Association of Moving Image Archivists. They are quite a group. They are currently having a conference down in Pittsburgh, all about media preservation, and I figured it would be a good time to talk to them, hear about the conference, and share a little bit of the message of preservation, a topic I'm sure that's very near and dear to a lot of our hearts. Be sure to go to amianet.org to find out more about AMIA and what they're up to and even become a member. Hope you enjoy the interview. Rachel, could you tell me a little bit about you and your background and, and what got you interested in film and film preservation? Yeah, so I have been a member of AMIA for 25 years. But before that, I was, I'm was i a long lover of sort of the golden age of Hollywood. I think growing up in Austin, Texas, in an era in the 80s where you could see so much independent cinema and so much classic Hollywood, it was sort of my first or second or third love in there. <laughs> so I have a background in fine arts photography. And when I learned sort of that there was a whole world of preservation and conservation and archiving that would bring together sort of all of my knowledge of photochemical knowledge and and film history, it just seemed like the most perfect job in the world. Beat ahead about 11 years ago, I started Indiana University Libraries Moving Image Archive, so a film archive here at IU. We have about 130,000 items. But again, I first went to Omiya in 1996, so a couple of years ago, but five years after it was founded. So been a longtime member, first-time president. And Laura, how about yourself? My background, I come from primarily nonprofit. When I was coming out of school, I got into, um, I was working for the National Association of Theater Owners of California, Nevada. So I started there in exhibition and worked a lot with theater owners and operators. And we did the National Show West Convention, which has now become uh, CinemaCon. And from there went to film festivals. And then I started to learn more about preservation because it was a side of, it was a side, it wasn't showing the film. It wasn't making the film. From my standpoint, i never had put much thought into what gets it from there to, for example, DVD or from there to access. And so I came on to AMIA. I think it's been 20 years now. Exactly. And so I've learned a lot about the preservation and what it really takes and the fact that we wouldn't have any of this had there not been archivists and preservationists along the road to make sure we did. It's been a nice, it's been a nice bookend from showing the films to, to actually now working with people who preserve them. What is AMIA and what does it stand for and what do you do with it? So it's the Association of Moving Image Archivists. We have been around since 1991 and we're an organization primarily made up of members. I think we're at about 840 members now. We also have, I think, about 80 institutional members. 
But I think individual membership means it draws in all these individuals that care, right? Like we have so much passion and so many amazing committee members who do so much over and over again. And we're made up of archivists and librarians, preservationists, and that's video and film and digital. And we have vendors and we have studio people. So we have distributors and, you know, for profits, which is different from some of our sister organizations. So But we're a pretty passionate lot and we all get pretty excited to get together and and share information. And it's I would also say, and we were just talking to some new board members last week. It is a very caring organization that wants to share knowledge and mentor others. So it's a really supportive group. When AMIA was founded uh, back in 1991, it came out of an informal roundtable people who were doing this work, there were the archives, right? You had you had a lot of the big archives, but film and video were, I'm going to say the, the stepchildren, right? They were the part of the collection that people didn't pay attention to. They were the part of the collection that people weren't particularly trained to work with. And so what happened is that they got together and just started an informal roundtable where the studio sat down with some of the archives. And there was this, this real coming together of sharing knowledge just because there was nowhere else to get it except from each other. And so they eventually, there was more and more, and and you'll remember this is in the eighties and early nineties. And so film and video, especially as you moved, you know, DVD and all of these other, these other ways of accessing the information became more and more important. And so they decided that there were enough people now working in this area to be able to come together and form an association and, and be formal. It was 10 years, I think, after we formed that you started to see the schools, NYU, UCLA, Amsterdam, a few others, have actual programs that address moving image archives. Until then, there hadn't been anything other than this kind of journeyman and apprentice approach where you learned from colleagues how exactly the work should be done. And so that philosophy of we need to come together and almost do it ourselves, right, has permeated AMIA throughout its history. And I think it's what makes us unique in terms of our sister organizations that deal with audio and film on a national level primarily is because it does include everybody who is doing this work. It isn't just national archives. It isn't just studios. It's not just community. And I mean, community down to what we call the lone arrangers, right? The guys who are the only one dealing with, with the collection or the or the only one who knows where the collection is. And everybody comes together and shares. And that has been the history. And I think that that has permeated it. As Mike pointed out last week, it's one of the few organizations where the person at the very top of a company or an archive is more than willing to, and will actually eagerly seek out the newest members of the field to sit down and just share. And it is that tradition of passing down, which I do think comes from our founding. It's part of the culture. Is the primary goal preservation or are there more aspects to it? I think it's preservation and access together because as, as I think there's more and more people. And, and I think Rachel can speak more to this because she's, she's in an archive, but I guess the question can be asked why preserve if there's no access. But that has been the constant battle. I think since, the first film archives in the 1930s, the earliest film archives, there there were sort of these two camps of what was what became the British Film Institute. The the original founder, Ernst Lindgren, wanted to lock everything away and preserve it and nobody could ever touch it. 
and his counterpart at the Cinémathèque Française in Paris was screen it all, screen it as much as possible. The prints get ripped to shreds. And so there is, I think they exhibit exactly what has happened over the last hundred years of, of we are working so hard to preserve it for all eternity. And yet we also want to provide access, but how do you do that without harming the material? So it's always a, it's a little balancing act. So me has been around for 30 years. So that means you guys must have archived everything by now, correct? I get a lot of questions because we we just completed a mass digitization project and it covered 15% of our collection and we spent about $15 million <laughs> and, and scanned 25,000 reels of film, but it's only a drop in the bucket, right? So uh, I think actually one of the one of the things in our field that I try to to explain to people is that so much of the work we do is so invisible. And so people sort of assume that everything's been done, everything's out there, everything's digitized, everything's archived, but it is one of the the harder cells to get any administrator in any field to hire more archivists or catalogers, one of the the, the most important role in our field, right? Describing something uh, when you have no description of a whole collection that came in and there's nothing on them, right? So yeah, no, I, I'm sure we have not. It's it's so hard to do everything, even in a well-funded organization. Is the main goal to digitize things or to keep the actual film prints, kind of restore those and keep those projectionable? Well, we I take a, a twofold approach, right? So if we can digitize it at a high quality preservation level scan, that's our preservation master, but that's how we're providing access, right? And at the same time, we just built brand new film vaults that are 38 degrees, right? Perfect. Put them in archival, minted polypropylene film cans, proper housing on cores and cold storage. But what we try to do is one touch, right? You might have noticed over the years, like the new newest restoration, the Buster Keaton films, right? Like over and over again, <laughs> somebody's doing it better and better and better. But for me, any kind of reproduction or duplication, which we've always done in our field, whether that's originally to two-inch quad videotape, eventually to, you know, now we're, we're just going straight to digital. There's always one kind of reproduction stage that's providing access. So for me, it's it's it is preserving the film by by digitizing it, but and then there are of course levels of what you're doing with that digital file afterwards, whether that's seven more years of restoration, frame by frame cleanup, or for archives like mine, it's how much can you get up and out there so that people can have access to it legally as long as we have copyright. I go to the Nitrate Film Festival out at the Eastman House, and they will talk about things about. You know, this should be good to project for another few years or even a number of times for projection. How do you even start to gauge something like that? Right. So that's actually a great question. So that's actually part of what we've talked, what Laura was referring to in the training process. So any motion picture film, whether it's nitrate, acetate, polyester, less so, but the film bases deteriorate, right? So nitrate especially is precarious. It's been around longer. But acetate too, right? As it deteriorates, it starts to off-gas acidic acid. And as it does, it's breaking down chemically. It's shrinking. Your sprocket holes are getting closer together. And when they get really bad and shrunken, you'll even peel up your emulsion. It's terrifying. <laughs> so what we as film archivists are trained to do is put a film on a bench, a film bench. So you have two reels, right? 
you wind through the film, as long as you're also not peeling up that acetate, you're having warpage, you're having, you know, once something's really badly deteriorated, you're not, if you project that, you're the, the claws of the, the projector, the tooth will dig into that film. So we do, we have really, really elaborate film inspection reports for, especially anytime we send out a film before we send it out and it comes back before you do a restoration. So when they're talking at the nitrate picture show about this, they're sort of gauging the timeline and especially nitrate since it was, they stopped manufacturing in the fifties, right? Although I, I got a collection and I give mine to the Library of Congress because I can't legally house nitrate. But we got a collection in that had been in a projectionist's garage outside of Louisville. And somebody just went down, our director of our cinema went down and picked it up and brought it to us. <laughs> and the cans were all rusty and horrible. But there was some beautiful, beautiful nitrate in there, including a, a Technicolor nitrate print that was just so gorgeous. We digitized it all and then we gave it to the Library of Congress because it's too dangerous for us and illegal. Yeah, but film, like the rest of us, we all deteriorate. You also have the wear and tear from the projectors themselves. I think one of the things that we have paid attention to is that because we do think that being able to see film projected, whether it's a nitrate film or 35 millimeter film, is an experience of itself. Fewer and fewer theaters have 35 millimeter, which also means that there are fewer and fewer projectionists who know how to handle film and know how to really project it properly. And one of the things that we have worked with is we, we've held um, projection workshops. And what those are, are very focused on dealing with what are becoming increasingly rare prints or archival prints. And they take a little bit more wear and care. They also have, I think in many ways, you're seeing a shift in how projectionists uh, approach a film. And I've, we've seen it through our workshops. We've seen it because we have members who are projectionists who work with a lot of repertory theaters is the projectionist motto always was get it on the screen, right? You get it on the screen. And if that means that something tears, they'll, they'll be another print behind it. And that's fine. As long as we go on screen. And now there is, because prints are rare. Um, some prints, once they go, the archive, for example, can't afford to, to print another film. Now it's save the print at all costs. Right. And if that means you have to stop a projection because you're having a problem, then that's what you do. But it's taken for many who work in that in that portion of the field, it's taken a little bit of a recalibration of how they approach their work because of the rarity of prints. And that's true of of anything that's coming from archives. An archive doesn't, unlike a studio that releases 3000 prints, there may only be one loaner print of a film. And once that's out of circulation, you're not going to see it in 35 millimeter again, unless it gets, there's a, there's a donor or something that will come in and strike a print. And so for Mia, one of the things that we've tried to do is to give that training. And we've worked a lot with Boston Light and Sound, who's one of the premier projection groups in the world to train projectionists to work with archival film. And those have to go hand in hand um, to make sure that the prints are still there for us to watch. One reason why we're talking is there is a conference that's coming up in Pittsburgh, the EMEA annual conference, the 32nd one. What goes on there other than a lot of drinking? The conference is a chance for archivists to get together. And many, most institutions, I'm going to say the bulk of institutions, have don't have a large archival staff, which means for many archivists, this is the only chance they will get to speak to colleagues throughout the year face-to-face, now face-to-face, right? 
So at the conference, we have a number of, of sessions that address different challenges and different successes and different case studies in preservation and restoration, um, new access ideas. There's been really creative work in terms of access and films from organizations such as Southside Home Movie Project. Alma Drafthouse does a lot with Tammy in terms of bringing these films to life again. And so there's there are sessions. We have screenings. We're doing a day of free public screenings in Pittsburgh focused on Pittsburgh filmmakers. We have an archival screening night, which is we like to call the Cabinet of Curiosities. It is a chance for archivists to show off things that are either newly acquired or newly restored, most of which have never been seen in public. And so they come, they talk about these things, and it's it's like a long clip reel, which is tremendous. So they get six million or six minutes to talk about something, in, and it could be a clip of a Calvin Coolidge speech, you know, followed by a health and safety film from the 60s, followed by a restoration of Lawrence of Arabia. It can be anything and you'll get all of it. Some of my favorites have been local television clips that will come in and are hysterical. And you just kind of want to go back in time and watch them. And then we also do, you know, we do the standard receptions. We have a trivia night. We do, we do things like this, but it, it really is a chance to get together and see the, the, the enormity or the breadth of the things that, that archivists deal with. We'll have a session on ethics, for example, that is followed by one on AK scanning. So you have all sides, I think, of the profession, all sides of the field really represented. We tried to bring our colleagues from the Ukrainian Film Archive, who not only are facing war, but also a destruction of the Dovshinka Center right now. They're, they're Because of bureaucracy, they're breaking it apart and... So the films are basically in jeopardy. So we tried to bring them over, but there are, of course, visa problems. We did something that we just launched called The Conversation. And so it's a conversation with me that will screen and then a tour of their facility. And or actually, it's more of a history of their films and some Ukrainian cinema. So we'll do that on Friday morning, which I think is really important. Similarly, we'll have running in our pavilion an interview with the director of the Apple Shop Film Archives. And they, I don't know if you read about them, but they had a massive, horrible flood in Kentucky in July. It sounds like huge portions of this 50-year-old, amazing Appalachian filmmaking and more, not just films. Sounds like they were destroyed, although they, they've been doing some recovery. So we have an update from her. So this is also a way for those of us who've been really concerned about, you know, people, colleagues in the field. Um, I also will have a global perspectives panel on bringing someone from Thailand, someone from Brazil, and a scholar from Canada who works on African cinema to sort of talk about specific challenges outside of the U.S. related to the Brazilian archive was also having being shut down and films were in jeopardy and they had a fire. And I'm just collectively talking about a lot of disasters, but I guess I meant to point out that we're, we're bringing in sort of lots of stories from around the world at this point to talk about and discuss and see how we can offer support in various areas. I remember hearing about that Brazilian fire just because I remember hearing things about, I think, Metropolis. Some of the missing pieces were found there. And then I know that people are holding out hope about Magnificent Ambersons, maybe finding a print of that down there. So yeah, even when a, a layman like me, when I heard that, I was just devastated. They got rid of their staff at one point, and uh, it's it's been, uh, I mean, 
when you when you throw in sort of political issues on top that that affect you know national cinema like entire national cinema as what's happening in ukraine right now and and what was happening in brazil i think they're a little bit on more stable footing but it's it's challenging you know it certainly puts into perspective when we when we in the u.s just like want one more staff person (laughs) (laughs) well but i think it's a good point because i think some of the work that amia does is to advocate for some of these things because i think that here we don't have necessarily the the political issues that many other countries do have and in brazil i know a lot of it was exacerbated by the lack of resources and the desire to kind of break up the archive and you see that in other places we don't have the disaster i'm going to say the, the political disaster zone that other areas do when you read about film archivists in um, afghanistan burying film to hide it from the taliban coming in because archives ultimately are fragile in some ways. They depend on the will of the people to want to connect with their history, and they rely on the government, in many cases, wanting that to happen. And when you're talking about political takeovers, destroying an archive and destroying people's identity is a very powerful way of controlling the narrative. And so this work in Brazil or the work in in Ukraine is about more than just making sure that you can see a film from the 20s. It's really looking at what the culture looked like and what we celebrated and what was held up as an example of who we are. There are a few panels that are coming up at the conference that just sound fascinating to me. One of them is talking about missing movies and finding films. And just because, again, you would think everybody knows where everything is. And I know that that is so far away from the truth as well. Yeah, so Missing Movies as a group, we actually are really proud to be their fiscal sponsors. And um, we've been working with them alongside them. And our former president, Dennis Doris, who you know, has is, is part of that founding group. And historically, and you might already know this, but you know that like the, that first period of silent, the silent era, there's about 85% of that that's been lost. And of course, that was partially because there was no other revenue generation happening right after the first screening. It was partially because nitrate was dangerous. So you hear stories of burying whole giant loads of film in swimming pools. If you saw Bill Morrison's last film, they dug up all this film. There are lots and lots of reasons why, why we don't have it wasn't culturally important. But then if you start looking over time, I like to use this example that Raintree County, so nominated for five Academy Awards, Elizabeth Taylor, Montgomery Cliff, right? You think, and, and I actually did the research after somebody programmed the film and ha- was going to have a big party around it. And then they called me two and a half weeks before and they're like, hey, we can't find this anywhere. So I realized I did research and it opened in like 346 theaters across this country at the time, right? So we got at least that many prints going. <laughs> so I, I was very confident. I was like, of course we can find this, right? Of course, right? So I located a print at the Library of Congress that was missing a reel, right? So we have not a complete print. The only other print I could find in the country was at the George Eastman Museum, but it was Martin Scorsese's personal print, and we were not granted permission. So we we scrambled and scrambled and wasn't out on DVD, wasn't streaming. So we realized we had a laser disc. <laughs> <laughs> We did not tell the audience that we screened a laser disc, but 
That's a great example of a film that you assume, right? It's always going to, I mean, it wasn't a small, like missed by most people kind of film. And then we move on to the 90s, right? The 90s don't seem very long ago. So the missing movies group, Nancy Savoka in particular, she she could not find her film Household Saints when somebody asked to come looking for it. And Mary Heron, I think I shot Andy Warhol. They were having, so they were starting to realize that they did not have copies of these prints and they could not find copies of these prints. So the 1990s. And this, this is going to be, I think, an even bigger problem as filmmakers have started shooting digitally. So digital is very fragile. It's much harder to archive, even though, I mean, filmmakers, it's not their job, right? It's never their job to archive their, their projects. Their job is to move on to the next movie. So we as film archivists sometimes get these like collections in that are messy and unorganized and not labeled because the filmmaker is like, I'm done. <laughs> but I think with digital, we're going to have a really scary problem of like, what was the master when we have these 13 petabytes on a couple hard drives, right? So one thing that I am excited about, and I'm we're partnering with Missy Movies, is we are launching a series and we are in South by Southwest in March. We have a workshop that I'll be doing with Rich Gay and Nancy Savoka. So Rich produced some of these films. So it's a Missy Movies AMIA partnership because I think we need to start working with filmmakers right now to talk to them about steps in place they need to do to protect their films, right? To know where those films are, have them in multiple locations, to be doing checks on your hard drives, looking for digital rod, right? Check sounds. I only even recently heard this. I've always said, do two different hard drives, get them in two different geographic locations. I just heard a story the other day that the person got the same brand of hard drive and they both failed at the same time. <laughs> so now I've, I've like added more slides to my <laughs> talk. But but my fear is actually in this digital age, I, I feel like the fragility, even if you think about computer files that you can't open from 15 years ago, I think we're, this is a big thing that, that Laura and I have worked on over the past year. And we started with the National Film Preservation Board funding grant. We did some webinars over the summer, and now we're hoping to launch them starting in March at South by. And I think that's important to look at the fragility of, of digital because you also have distribution models that are changing for filmmakers, right? Filmmakers, it used to be back in the day where they went through a big distributor. And for many, for many, that distributor would take on um, the print or take on the master and they would be responsible for archiving it. What you have now is you have a much broader distribution system and people are distributing sometimes in some cases their own films. You have to have the knowledge if you really do want to make sure that your files are there. I always say 20 years, but I know personally, I have lost files in six months on a computer. And I was telling somebody the other day that they were asking me, well, well what exactly is involved in, in doing this? I said, well, think of it as you, we've all upgraded computers right? And we've all moved files over. And in that process, we have all lost files. But now imagine you're the Library of Congress. And it's not that photo from, you know, from, from Betty's 16th birthday. It is now a classic film, or it is now television, or it is now something else. And just on the massive scale that that has to be done, and that attention to detail and that attention to the quality of that next migration. And I think it is, I think as, as Rachel said, it is very fragile. Any of us who have ever lost a photo 
understand how fragile that process can go. Yeah, because I should really stress again that this is not just about film. You know, you've got radio, television, like you just said. There are all of these different mediums, and yeah, they they just disappear. You know, there's shows from the late 90s from HBO that I'm just like, how can this not be available someplace right now, either on VHS even or DVD, much less Blu-ray. And and then sometimes people are thinking, if it's not streaming, it's not available anywhere. And it's like, no, there's... Uh, there's still physical media out there. One of the projects we've been working on is local television. On the national level, we have a film preservation board. We have a recorded sound preservation board. But I think what a lot of people don't understand is that we don't have a television preservation board. So, for example, we work on the National Film Registry every year to make sure that our national cultures, some of the films from our national culture are preserved. There's nobody looking at television. Um, and what a key key cultural touchstone television is through the years, right? I, I saw a statistic. We, we held a local television summit in 2019 in, in Washington. 80% of local television created before, I think it's 1985, is just gone. And when you think of what is covered on local television from community events to news and how it spans everybody's day and how many stations there were. Some of the most interesting footage to come out of, for example, civil rights studies has been from those local stations. 80% of it, they estimate, is gone. And that's a tremendous amount. And what is there, a lot of it is on that media that's very, it's probably coming to the end of its, its life. So there's a big push right now to, one, to figure out what is out there. And we just completed, I think, the first U.S. database of local television collections and what the next step is. We'd really like to get some recognition for television and for the part of the culture that that, that, that represents. If people are interested in learning more about what your organization does and want to get involved, perhaps, what's the best way for them to do that? Yeah, the website is really full of so many fantastic resources. I think that's that's a great way to start. And if you're interested, I know we get from a lot of just sort of regular people, we tend to get a lot of calls at the archive I work at, everything from Home Movies, which actually is a big part of me as well, the founders of Home Movie Day, which has been around for 14 or 15 years now. People hold it one day in October. It's usually a public event and people can bring in their media. It's sometimes very emotional. I've had woman who hadn't seen her parents had passed away long ago, but her parents wedding. And so we project people can talk over it. That day, there were lots of sobbing, right? We now are set up to, to work with people both with film and video, but home movies are just as equally as important. And I, I would overstate to everyone whether they have it on film, rare video formats, please don't ever get rid of any of those originals. But now digital medium, really your baby first steps, you know, maybe reach out to an archivist to talk about ways to preserve over and over again and have them in safe locations. But yeah, start with the website and you can, you can find, and, and again, like we probably do it like once a month, somebody calls us and we're just like, come on in, bring your stuff in. Got eight millimeter. How many? Okay, let's go. <laughs> Unfortunately, there's, there's a number of small organizations, small community groups that are doing more of, of exactly what Rachel's talking about which is helping people um, recognize what they have and how to take care of it. In Texas, they do the Texas Roundup. 
and they go into small towns and collect some of that work and help them dig- and help people digitize it so they've got the stories of their own families but it's also part of our shared memory as a as kind of a, a society or a culture all of those home movies it's a lot when you think about everything that we rely on audio and visual or audiovisual audio and 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 visual elements um, in terms of how we learn um, how we remember what we see what we do and more and more that is our record beyond paper it feels like a losing battle but I'm so glad that y'all are fighting it it's not a losing battle I'm gonna, I'm just gonna put myself out there and say um, it isn't I mean There's so many of us that are so passionate about what we do, frankly, and so excited. The other thing is we tend to work together, right, on especially if you've been to the Night Picture Show or various restoration festivals, you'll see archives are always working together, right? Oh, I have this copy. Oh, I have the elements. Let's let's figure this out. Yeah, it's it's just hard to to do it all, right, to do everybody's home movies as well and preserve that cultural legacy or... Our entire history. I think Laura just, but Tammy, she was talking about the Texas Archive and the Moving Image. It's one of my favorite websites to visit because they put, they digitize people's things like from every era, from all over the state. And there's everything from like the mermaids and New Braunfels. I remember as a kid going to visit <laughs> to, you know, rodeos to political figures. It's so fantastic. Hair from the 80s, which you just, you know, it's baffling, but it is. One of my very favorite archives to watch from a distance. So, I still think one of my favorite pieces, though, they have a talking dog video, and so does I think it's the Wolfson Center in Florida. And just comparing the two talking because they were both local newscasts that went out to talk to people who said their dogs talked, and it's amazing because the dogs both sounded exactly alike in Texas and in Florida. So clearly, they spoke the same language. Rachel and Laura, thank you so much for your time tonight. I really appreciate this. Hey, thank you for reaching out. This is awesome. Next time you're in my neck of the woods, feel free to to give me a ring. Yeah, definitely. Will do.
said she was beautiful.